Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome uh, to the third annual uh, Supreme Court of the United States uh, review panel here at UCSF. Uh, this is sponsored by the UCSF UC Hastings Consortium on Law, Science, and Health Policy. My name is Dan Doan. I'm on the faculty here at UCSF and one of the co-directors of the consortium. And we have a wonderful panel assembled today uh, to talk about the decision that just came out this morning in the Hobby Lobby case before the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm going to just introduce our panel, uh, then we'll be turning it over for some brief comments from each of the panelists, and uh, after that we'll have some uh, discussion among the panelists and hopefully with you as well. Thank you all for coming, and let me introduce the panel. David Fagman uh, is the John F. DeGuardi Distinguished Professor of Law, and he's Associate Dean at UC Hastings. He's also my fellow co-director of the consortium. David's a constitutional law expert, and his role on the panel today will be to parse the decision of the court. Uh, he's been very busy this morning uh, looking through the multiple opinions that were issued by the, the, the justices. Next to David is Diana Green Foster, who's an associate professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive health sciences here at UCSF. Dr. Foster is a demographer by training, and she's going to orient us to the health issues that are at stake in Hobby Lobby. She'll discuss why ACA includes coverage for different types of reproductive health services and why it matters if these services continue to receive coverage and support um, or if they don't. Jennifer Wicker is Associate Director of Governmental Relations at UCSF. Uh, Jennifer is UCSF's voice in Washington, D.C., and spends more of her time on the East Coast uh, than here. And she's going to be speaking today to the political dynamics of the decision. What does this mean for the ACA implementation generally? And talks a little bit about how Congress or the administration might react in the wake of this ruling. Finally, Rob Schwartz is the Weihoffen Professor of Law at the University of New Mexico and a visiting professor here at UC Hastings. As is true for many Supreme Court decisions, Hobby Lobby is not just about the law and not just about the politics, um, but it's about both at the same time. So Rob will help us understand today's decision um, in that context. Now, if you are like me and you've been looking at this uh, this is the decision that was issued, uh, and f we followed it along on the SCOTUS blog, which is an online reference where people keep up with what's happening with the Supreme Court. But immediately after that, uh, my Facebook uh, stream blew up with lots of comments, and our news media also posted a lot of headlines about the Supreme Court decision. So this is what we all know from just looking at the popular media uh, as the panel discusses what really happened in the decision and what the decision really means for policy um, and for health, uh, reproductive health, I think we're all going to get a greater uh, depth of understanding of what's going on here. And we're really happy you can join us. We feel like this is one of the unique things that the consortium can help us is understand uh, these kinds of issues in an appropriate level of depth. So with that, uh, I'm going to turn things over to David, uh, who's going to present uh, some comments, and then we'll go on the panel like that. Um, it's great to be here, and uh, as Dan mentioned, I got up this morning and uh, got close to my computer to figure out what the court was going to do, and the first announcement was that uh, Justice Alito uh, had decided both cases coming down today. So what I, my job in a relatively short period of time is to give you 
uh, the background on how Hobby Lobby came to be, uh, what the court decided in Hobby Lobby, uh, and some of the unanswered questions that are now left open. Let me give you a little background. Uh, the case involved what's known as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or known as RIFRA. Uh, so I'll refer to it as RIFRA, but it's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, and basically, the uh, U.S. Congress uh, passed RIFRA in response to a Supreme Court decision involving uh, the peyote case that, from Oregon that I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with. Uh, but basically what the U.S. Supreme Court, with Justice Scalia writing the opinion, by the way, uh, which creates a bit of an irony in that Justice Scalia, of course, was in the majority today, but the court held in Smith was that if you had a law of general application, uh, like a drug law involving Schedule I substances, uh, that the First Amendment's free exercise clause was not implicated at all. It was not implicated at all, Prior to, which meant that there was no judicial review. Prior to Smith, the Supreme Court took the position that if you wanted to exercise your religion against a generally applicable law, the government had to demonstrate by what's known as strict scrutiny that it did not have to accommodate your religious freedom. And so under that previous uh, doctrine, the government had the burden of proof and states had the burden of proof to demonstrate that their failure to give an accommodation in the Smith case, it involved a Native American who claimed the right to smoke peyote, uh, notwithstanding uh, state law in that case and federal law uh, that made it the crime to smoke peyote. Uh, the court said that our previous jurisprudence was no longer applicable, that the free exercise clause does not apply. Uh, and of course, that was an extremely controversial decision uh, that Justice Scalia decided. Congress almost immediately took up the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. They passed it nearly unanimously, which is shocking uh, given today's uh, realities. And the uh, Congress essentially said, we want to go back. We want to overturn what the Supreme Court did. That, that in, a, in a nutshell, that's actually what they did. Uh, and they said, therefore, you have to go back to this previous jurisprudence which if you are exercising your religious freedom, if the government is not going to accommodate you, the government has to have compelling objectives and it has to adopt the least restrictive alternatives or narrowly tailored means in order to accomplish that. The Supreme Court uh, then, subsequent to that, uh, and so this is the uh, RIFRA. Government shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability. So basically overturning the Supreme Court's decision. Now, as most of you know, uh, there's a little-known case from 1803 called Marbury versus Madison, uh, which basically held that Congress does not have the power to overturn a Supreme Court decision. And so a lot of people thought that RIFRA had inherent difficulties simply because of Marbury versus Madison. And in fact, in the case uh, City of Bernie, uh, the court invalidated RIFRA uh, as applied to state statutes. And the way the Supreme Court interpreted it is they said that Congress exercising its authority under now Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, and the exact revision is not particularly important, but basically that Congress did not have the authority to pass RIFRA 
as against state statutes. So it basically wiped out RFRA as it was applied to state statutes. But it still raised the question, and the question was left over, what about federal regulations, like the ACA, for example? And the Supreme Court subsequently restricted City of Bernie to state cases or state laws and did not extend it to federal law. So when it came to um, Hobby Lobby, basically the position of the court was that RIFRA was still intact, was still valid when it came to federal regulation, that is if a federal law uh, interfered with the free exercise of religion, the government would have to justify it by strict scrutiny, uh, but state laws were exempt. Now I should note that several states have themselves passed RIFRA statutes. Uh, about 10 now. And so the whole issue of well, what happens when it comes to state law is still on the table because states themselves can pass Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. So the uh, question presented in Hobby Lobby, this is actually from the question presented uh, in the case, uh, but the base, it basically comes down to whether a for-profit closely held meaning not publicly held where the shares are held by the public, but a quote, it's called in corporation, a closely held corporation, but for profit, whether it has a right as rights as a person under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And to that, the court said, yes. So in reading the court's decision, there are two issues, and it's a little bit complicated as a matter of legal interpretation, uh, and I apologize for any confusion. I'm happy to uh, answer any questions about this, but there are really two questions presented here. One is a constitutional question, and one is a statutory question. And so the free, exor the free exercise clause of the First Amendment guarantees persons the free exercise and of, of religion. And so under the previous jurisprudence, it was that guarantee of free exercise that was being interpreted. And that's where the government had to demonstrate compelling objectives and least restrictive means in order to justify failure to give an accommodation for religion. RIFRA, of course, was a statute. And so statutes can provide more protection than the Constitution. So just like the Fourth Amendment might say that you, uh, you, you uh, or maybe could search a car, the government can always say, well, we're going to give you more protection than the Fourth Amendment provides. You can't give less protection, but you can give more protection. And so the argument is that the statute, RIFRA, could actually provide more protection for individual liberty than the Constitution provides. So there's an immediate question as to whether the Supreme Court, Justice Alito's majority opinion, was interpreting the Constitution or was interpreting a statute. And the problem is, as you read the opinion, he's doing both. And he's doing both almost throughout the entire opinion. In the end, though, he says, we are only interpreting the statute, we are not interpreting the Constitution, but there's not much in the opinion that suggests that the majority, at least the four members of the, um, of the principal opinion, which are uh, Alito, Roberts, uh, Scalia, and Thomas, Kennedy wrote a concurring opinion, they would all seem to apply it to constitutional cases as well as statutory cases. So uh, I'm not really sure that that's true. So what are the holdings? First of all, the court extends the Citizens United opinion that corporations are people too. 
Now, the court never said in Citizens United, and they didn't say here that corp- they didn't use the Mitt Romney, corporations are people. What they did say is corporations are associations of people, and therefore they get religious protection, and that both constitutional and statutory arguments were advanced for that conclusion. The court also held that for-profit corporations can exercise religion. And again, both statutory and constitutional arguments were, were applied here. One of the principal concerns here, and sort of where I always had a stumbling block with this decision, uh, both before and now after, is it's not clear as a matter of corporate law why corporations are persons for purposes of free exercise of religion. And the problem is that the way corporate law works for profit corporations is that you form an association as a corporation in order to get limited liability. So I am going to create a corporation, and the idea of my creating a corporation is to create what we call a corporate veil. And the corporate veil, if the corporation does something illegal, the corporation might be liable. But I am not liable as a as the person behind the corporation, unless there's some reason to what we call pierce the corporate veil, which is just the terminology that corporate lawyers use. And so what was going on in this case is effectively Hobby Lobby and and Conestoga and the other uh, plaintiffs, in this case, were arguing that although we are a corporation and getting the benefit of being limited liability, we nonetheless want to pierce the corporate veil in terms of our ability to exercise religion. So the court, uh, in terms of the application here, the court does assume, I think Rob may talk about this a little bit, that the government has compelling, a compelling interest in providing contraceptive care. Uh, they don't find that. They simply assume that. But then they argue the reason why the provision fails here, the reason why uh, the accommodation has to occur is that the government did not use the least restrictive uh, means available because the government could simply pay for the benefit itself. So there's a Kennedy concurrence. Uh, Kennedy, of course, is the fifth vote. He believes that the interpretation of RIFRA will be limited, and because of the least restrictive alternative test will not apply too broadly, or at least not as broadly as Ginsburg fears. I personally was offended by Justice Kennedy's four-page opinion. Uh, it said virtually nothing, uh, but it sort of matches where uh, and how Kennedy does constitutional law. Uh, he's a great believer in splitting the baby. Uh, and unfortunately, when you split the baby, outside of biblical context, the baby is dead. Um, and so he did a very good job of splitting the baby here, uh, but the patient died. Uh, and it would seem to provide some hope for limitation on the scope of the opinion, but there's no reason to believe that that will actually have that effect. Ginsburg wrote a dissent, of course, that she sees the court, court's interpretation as expansive, uh, and she lists all sorts of contexts uh, from discrimination on the basis of gender, same sex, inoculations, uh, blood transfusions, uh, IVF, and all sorts of other things that might uh, be uh, asked for for an accommodation. And then there are a bunch of questions left undecided. I'll just go through these very quickly because I know my time is, uh, is up. Uh, does Hobby Lobby extend to publicly held corporations? Um, at least according to the four in the majority opinion, I think the answer is unequivocally yes. I think that there's no question from reading, reading Lito's opinion that he would extend it to publicly held corporations. Uh, what is the likely range of cases in which lower courts will now need to apply strict scrutiny? That's the problem here. In all these contexts, even if the challengers don't win, they don't deserve an accommodation, 
they can bring the suit and the suits have to be litigated. So if I'm the Koch brothers, I am now sitting in wherever they sit, Oklahoma or Kansas or someplace like that. Um, they're thinking about all the things they can do uh, to have disruptive litigation. So I think that uh, this opens up quite the Pandora's box. Uh, very interesting, there was very little discussion except in footnotes on the effects on third parties. Nobody really took into account the effects on the women uh, employees in these cases. Um, and then I think that there are possible multiplying effects due to possible state law RIFRA challenges. So I'll end there, and I apologize for going over a little bit. I'll talk a little bit about those third party interests. Um, so really I'm going to talk about why uh, uh, why contraceptive coverage is important and why we shouldn't just trust it to health insurance plans to decide whether to cover them. Um, but first, as an exercise, I'd like everyone to pick a contraceptive method. So if sterilization, for example, tubal ligation, IUCs, refers to small devices that go in your uterus, implants go under your skin and deliver a hormone, injectables inject the hormone, pills patch and ring, different delivery mechanisms for hormones, and the last three hopefully you know about. And now, on the basis for making your decision to pick a contraceptive method, here's how much they cost. And the condom is $5. You can barely see it. Um, and uh, the pills patch and ring for a woman who has no contraceptive coverage would pay about $370 to initiate um, pill patch or ring, over $4,000 to get a sterilization. So has everyone decided what they can afford and has a contraceptive method in mind? Here's how well your contraceptive method does. So the line is your chance of getting pregnant in the next year. And you can see that methods with large upfront costs have much lower chances of pregnancy in the next year. And not only that, but the ones with large upfront costs, you have to think about a lot less than ones that, you, that are free. So if you pick a sterilization, you think about it once when you have that procedure. Um, IUDs, you'll think about every five to 12 years, once every five to 12 years. Implants, once every three years. Uh, pills, every day. Patches, every week. And rings, every month. And then you have to think about the other three methods every single time you have sex. And what's the effect of um, this uh, clear relationship between cost and your chance of becoming pregnant is that one-third of women would switch methods if they didn't have to worry about the cost of a method. And who particularly would like to switch methods if they were free is uh, are women who are using condoms, withdrawal, or periodic abstinence. And this is before the ACA's ruling. Um, and it's not just whether, that's not just a barrier for women with no insurance. Co-pays are also a very large barrier to using effective methods. So uh, a drug that you have to pay for every month adds up to, you know, over $120 for a generic. Um, and sometimes there aren't generics available. And there have been cases that have been studied where, um, for example, Kaiser removed co-pays for effective methods and IUD use increased, but more than doubled. And then um, even when you think your health plan covers a method, um, sometimes it doesn't really cover all aspects of the method. So there is not a great history about leaving it up to health plans to decide contraceptive coverage. And what are the implications of um, these barriers is that um, 
most unintended pregnancies occur, 95% of unintended pregnancies occur to the third, one-third of women who either don't use a method or use it uh, inconsistently. Um, so about 6% of women use no method. This is prior to the ACA. 10% experience a gap. And uh, one in five has inconsistent use. And it's in part because it's very difficult to, to have a steady supply of medications when you have to pay out of pocket. Um, and we have a very high rate of unintended pregnancies in this country. And it is absolutely disproportionately falls on low-income women the risk of having an unintended pregnancy. Um, in 1993, um, only about a quarter of health plans covered the five leading contraceptive methods, and a quarter of them covered no contraceptives. And all, it has been rapidly changing. So by 2002, most health plans, but not all, covered the five leading methods. So what happened between 1993 and 2002 is there were legal uh, changes. So the law, I believe, made a big difference in increasing um, coverage for prescription contraceptives. The other thing that happened is we published data that showed contraceptives are very cost-effective in the long run, but I have a feeling it was more the legal argument than the cost-effectiveness argument. So Maryland was the first, um, and by 2012, 28 states mandated contraceptive coverage. Um, and in 2012, August, uh, under the ACA, all contraceptive methods should be covered with no co-pays. And that's where this law that was just decided by the Supreme Court, um, where the challenge was, why the challenge was inspired. Um, and really it was inspired because of corporations objected not to all contraceptives, but to two major types, intrauterine contraceptives and emergency contraception. So I'll take a moment to explain um, they believe that those methods caused abortion. So the medical definition of abortion is that three steps have to successfully happen. The woman has to ovulate, release an egg. That egg has to be fertilized by sperm. It has to implant in the uterus. And after that happens, you are pregnant. You are considered pregnant. So emergency contraception absolutely affects ovulation and not, um, and not fertilization. It seems to um, dis... Uh, affect follicle rupture so that the egg is never released. And the evidence for this is that there's very little effect on the endometrium, which is the lining of the uterus that you would need in order to affect implantation. And we find it's only very effective leading in the days leading up to ovulation. So it's not likely to be effective after ovulation. The IUDs um, Effect, have a foreign body effect, so they cause local inflammation, and this prevents um, the sperm from uh, either getting by or um, meeting the egg. And the copper IUD has copper ions that impair sperm, and the Mirena has lots of effects. This is the hormonal IUD, which may prevent ovulation and certainly thickens cervical mucus and... Um, also, both of methods do affect the endometrium. So if by chance, the, if you have an IUD inserted after you've already ovulated and the sperm has already entered, it could affect implantation, but you have to time that IUD insertion pretty carefully for it to act. To, in order for the sperm to have met the egg, you probably needed the IUD not to be there in the first place and then inserted after. So it's not like, it can act as, it can prevent implantation, but only if 
ovulation and fertilization has already occurred because it is very effective at the first two steps. So maybe it's not about whether, I mean, I think there was very little in that decision about the mechanism of action, so maybe it's more about um, contraceptives promoting promiscuity, and I just want to quickly point out that if you think that banning contraceptives will make everyone chaste, it's extremely unlikely. We've asked women in the clinic waiting rooms of family planning uh, centers, which are the least sexy places ever, whether women would have sex if they didn't have a method of contraception, and half of them say yes. So this is premeditated unprotected sex. This isn't even spur-of-the-moment unprotected sex. So it's very unlikely that in the absence of contraceptives, everyone would abstain. And these are my calculations for how much abstinence would have to occur for women to achieve the same pregnancy rates that they would using contraception. So just a final point. What is most important is that effective contraceptives actually reduce the use of abortion, and that um, point seems to be somewhat lost um, um, to some of the justices. So, and again, this point that most unintended pregnancies occur to women who don't consistently use contraceptives, and there's even a, it's absolutely clear that contraceptives prevent pregnancy, and this is even seen in a small dose-response study we did that shows that even the more contraceptives you give women, the less abortions they'll have. Um, And so what I think the public health implications of today's ruling is that it depends on what the workaround is. This may have no effect as long as there's a way for women to get contraceptives outside of their employer-based health plan. Um, and that without that we absolutely need a law mandating contraceptive coverage because we can't count on health plans to actually cover them in the absence of a legal mandate, even though they save money in the long run. If, if, if women had health plans for a long time, the ones that covered contraception would be cheaper than the ones that don't cover contraception. You'd get a discount. You'd get a tax for having a religious belief that prevented uh, you from covering contraception. Your plans should cost more. But um, unfortunately, most health plans don't seem to see this long view that they save money by uh, covering contraception. And I think this is a small blip in the big picture of contraceptive coverage. The ACA was a massive leap forward, and I think this is a very, this is an unfortunate and public statement from the Supreme Court, but I think it has very little actual um, reductions in contraceptive coverage that are now mandated under the ACA. So I thought I would spare you slides this morning. Um, if I had a slide, it would just be a picture of Washington, D.C. looking like a mess. Uh, so uh, I thought I'd take a step back um, and sort of try and wade through the political rhetoric that you're hearing this morning. If any of you are on Facebook or follow Twitter, um, you've seen that both the right and the left are already um, declaring this good um, for them in the next midterm election, the next presidential election. Um, and are going to be using this political fodder. So I wanted to stay, take a step back and, and look at what happened in 2010 and sort of where we are with implementation today and talk about the politics and con- where Congress and the president um, go forward from there. So when the ACA passed in 2010, um, I think a lot of folks thought, okay, we made it through this really tough political battle. There was a lot of compromise. It was a very narrow um, passage um, the House and the Senate. Um, but once the law gets implemented, the political battles will be over. Well, first we had uh, the political battles will be over once we get through the next presidential election. So we got through the next presidential election. 
oh, excuse me, the next presidential election and the first sort of ACA challenge. So we got through the first ACA challenge and the ACA was basically spared um, in the individual mandate case between the Supreme Court. Then we went through the next presidential election. President Obama won re-election. All right, so great. Opponents of the ACA thought, all right, we're going to move forward with implementation and the political and legal battles will be over. Um, well, they were wrong. And um, they're wrong for several reasons. It continues to be a, a very good political talking point for both for Republicans um, and, frankly, for Democrats as well. Um, so after the president uh, won re-election, we had the next midterm election, and Democrats lost the House of Representatives. The reason they lost majority of the House of Representatives are for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons, when you look at polling figures, was, frankly, the ACA. The ACA um, helped give rise to sort of this Tea Party anti-government movement, um, which continues today. So, um, so the battles have kind of continued from there. And as we have seen since the last um, midterm election, you've got House majority, you've got a narrow Democrat majority in the Senate, um, and you've got a Democrat administration. So what does that cost? Complete gridlock. Um, which has left the administration opening um, to moving forward sort of administratively. Um, so I thought I would step back to sort of where this provision came from in 2010, because I think it illuminates sort of the big battle that's going on right now between what the administration is trying to do sort of through regulation um, and then what Congress is trying to do through the courts um, to sort of fight those regulations. Um, so when you look through the ACA, which is a thousand some odd pages, more than that, there is no provision that mandates contraception coverage in, in the bill. What it does mandate is that insurance companies that are employer-based have to provide preventive services um, with no co-pays, essentially. But it leaves it up to the administration to interpret what that means. So it, it specifically leaves HRSA to, to determine what that means. So HRSA um, uh, went to the IOM and asked them... Uh, commissioned a report um, of what those services should contain. In the IOM report, it contained uh, contraception coverage, which is sort of where we got to today. Um, so I think that's really important for you to understand that this was not a Congress mandate, but that this came specifically from um, this sort of administration regulation um, sort of mandate. Um, so I think that that kind of brings us to where we are today, which is um, you've got Speaker of the House, John Boehner, who has announced that he will be filing um, multiple lawsuits on multiple fronts about multiple regulations that the administration has um, proposed in lots of areas, not just the ACA. Um, so where do we go from here and where does Congress go from here with today's from a Hobby Lobby decision? Um, the President has taken a lot of hits on the ACA and the administration has taken a lot of hits on the ACA. Has implementation been 100% successful? Um, I think that we still have a lot of unanswered questions about that. Um, we've enrolled 8 million people. We've enrolled over 4 million um, through the Medicaid expansion. Um, the administration and a lot of folks say that's a success. Do we know, are those folks still paying their premiums? Are they getting access to care? Um, I think those are unanswered questions. If you are in the state of California, are you seeing the same amount of success in the ACA as if you live in even Oregon, for example? Um, so where you sit says a lot about where you see the success of the ACA implementation. There's a lot of geographic diversity. 
There's also a, a lot of individual diversity. Um, if you were somebody who was uninsured before and was able to get insurance through the exchange, it has been a success. If you were an individual who had an individual health care plan before that you paid for privately, lost that plan and had to go on the exchange and discovered that you were paying $500 more a month than you were before because of new regulations, then it wasn't a success. So we're still in this period of not knowing, I think, if ACA has been a real success or not. Um, and so as until we have that data, until we know, you know, in October when we see the new insurance premiums, our insurance premiums going down, our health care costs going down, are the amount of people who are uninsured, are they now insured, are they getting access to care? There's still a lot of questions out there about the law. And public opinion is still really varied. It's, you ask people, do I support Obamacare? They say no. Do you say, or majority say no. If you ask them, do I support the Affordable Care Act? The majority say yes. So, so there's still, even after we have spent millions of dollars on education campaigns, and this has been in the news, there's still a lot of confusion um, and unknowns uh, amongst the public. Um, so we are in this period of really uncertainty. And so I think today's Hobby Lobby decision sort of feeds into some of that uncertainty and feeds into um, this idea that, you know, maybe ACA has, is not, it's, it's a rough road, right? Um, just as if, just as it was a rough road a few months ago when the website was crashing every five minutes. Um, so I think we're, it's, it's definitely, it's going to be a hit, not so much in the ACA as a whole, as others have previously mentioned. Um, this is a very small, sort of narrow part of the ACA, but it definitely feeds into this sort of overall impression um, that ACA's road has, has not been in, as smooth and that I think that its future um, is sort of uncertain. Um, so Senator Patty Murray this morning already announced that she's introducing legislation as sort of a workaround um, to the Hobby Lobby decision, would probably allow for um, the, the federal government to pay directly for employees' uh, contraceptive coverage that wouldn't be covered um, you know, if they work for a company like Hobby Lobby. Um, where does that legislation go when you've got a divided Congress, Democrat Senate, Republican House um, and Democrat administration. Um, probably nowhere. So nothing's really going forward in Congress. Um, and that sort of is, in any law like the ACA, you're going to have small tweaks that need to be made, um, you know, small improvements. And frankly, um, that's just not going to happen in this Congress. Um, and probably nothing is going to majorly change in the ACA legislatively until the next presidential election. Um, so that really leaves it up to the administration um, to try and do things through regulation administratively, um, which is going to feed into further legal challenges, which will lead into my, I think, colleague to address. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly um, agree with uh, what much of what my, panel, with, uh, my uh, fellow panelists have said, but uh, say disagree with some of it. I have a somewhat different take on this case. I certainly agree that the inability of Congress to act and to, to fix the little problems, the, the typographic, literally typographical mistakes um, in the act are going to lead to a great deal more of lit litigation than it already has. And what I'd like to spend most of my time doing is actually talk to you about what the really big cases are that are going to be coming around um, uh, starting well, starting this year. Uh, but with the Supreme Court will get a chance to see them at their next term st starting in October, at least probably. Um, first, let me say that I don't think that this opinion 
Um, uh, it, it may be important for some purposes. It may be important for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It may be important ultimately in First Amendment jurisprudence, but it's not important for matters of reproductive rights, and it's not important for matters of the actual um, effectiveness of the ACA. I don't think it's going to change the nature of the operation of the ACA or the availability of um, uh, reproductive services in, uh, in any way. Um, and I think we ought to focus on Kennedy's opinion, even though um, uh, David is concerned about that opinion. He is the swing vote. He decides what the law is going to be. There are four on one side and four on the other, and whoever gets Justice Kennedy wins the case. And that is actually really significant because that's going to be true next year, too. And let me just see if I can, for a moment, try to put ourselves in Justice Kennedy's mind because he is, uh, let, me, let me put it in slightly different words, different words than David used. He's a practical thinker. He actually thinks, he thinks about values and he thinks about constitutional concerns, but he thinks about them in sort of a practical sense. And he says, what we've got here are two real values that are in conflict. We have the value in someone being able to carry out their religious views. That's a really important value. It's part of the First Amendment. It's also in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and its successor acts. It's really important. And we're going to assume, and all nine justices assume, that this is a sincerely held religious view. And we don't care whether it's good policy or bad policy. We don't evaluate religions based on whether they're correct as a factual matter. Um, it's a sincerely held religious view. That's enough. The other side of that is reproductive health care. And the, he says, um, Justice Kennedy says, our question is, um, is the ability to get coverage that assures free IUDs and morning after pills a compelling state interest? And all nine, I think the most surprising part of the opinion and the best part is that all nine justices agree that there is a compelling state interest in having free access to the morning after pill and to IUDs. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. They assume it. They don't say it. The four in dissent say that there is such a compelling state interest. And Justice Kennedy, in his brief four-page opinion, very strongly suggests that he would find that there's a compelling state interest and he's going to proceed as if there is. So I think that that is actually a really significant uh, um, uh, part of the opinion. They then go ahead and do the balancing and ultimately they say, look, when I, when I do the balancing, Kennedy, who really is the swing vote and, and the majority, they say when you do the balancing here, there is an easy way to achieve the same end. You know, nonprofits, religious nonprofits, if Hobby Lobby had been organized as a religious not for profit, they're already accepted by regulations promulgated by the Department of Health and Human Services. They don't have to provide this service, and the insurance company, by, by federal regulation, the insurance company that insures their employees has to provide it outside of the employment context for free. And everyone's been happy with that. Why not do that same thing for for profit companies? who have religious, um, religious views. You can do that, no one will be affected. Everyone has complete coverage. All the women get complete coverage. No one is injured. And you respect the First Amendment religious rights, or the statutory, in this case, religious rights. So that is, it seems to me, what's so significant in the case is the, the it all depends upon what Kennedy concludes. Let me just, let, uh, let me, the majority, actually, Justice Alito, let me just read you his line. The effect of the HHS-created accommodation on the women employed by Hobby Lobby and other companies would be precisely zero. And the reason they can come out the way they do in this case is they conclude that there will be no effect on the women who actually seek this care. Now, 
Um, there are ways you can read the opinion where that might not be always true and might not be consistently true, but as a matter of general course, that really is true. And what's going to happen next? Well, I presume that Hobby Lobby will, can, will offer a policy that doesn't include IUDs and the morning after pill and that um, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services will promulgate a regulation that say that the insurance companies that Hobby Lobby buys from has to, on its own, outside, provide that insurance, and the insurance company will be happy to do that. There'll be no additional charge, and we'll be exactly, from the point of view of the insured, of the employee, we'll be exactly where we are now. And all nine justices seem to conclude, in this case at least, with these issues, will really be where we were before. So I don't think that the, the case poses much of a risk um, uh, uh, to uh, anyone. Um, there are, as the court points out, other ways of meeting the compelling state interest of getting free coverage for, um, um, uh, for um, IUDs and um, uh, morning after pills. The federal government could pay for them. The state government could pay for them. Private organizations could pay for them. Individuals could pay for them. There, there's no limitation on access to them formally. There is a practical limitation, but in fact, even that is not going to exist in, um, in this case. So really, the ACA perfectly survives this attack, from my point of view. And you have to ask yourself, are we finally home? Um, the Supreme Court has now had two major ACA cases. Are we, um, are we uh, free from major litigation problems under the ACA? We know we're not free from legislation problems and from regulatory battles, but how about litigation? And the answer is no, we're nowhere close to being home because there are two cases now pending in the, tr in the lower courts that really do threaten the whole ACA. And I'm just going to point them out to you now so that you'll know where we're going, what we're going to be doing next year and the year after. Um, uh, at these sessions. The first is Halbig versus Burwell, which was just argued to the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit three months ago. Hasn't been decided by the Court of Appeals yet. But, you know, the ACA provides subsidies. It all focuses on the subsidies called premium assistance to those people who buy their policies through the exchange. And the language of the statute, the language of the ACA, gives the premium assistance to anyone who, who meets the requirements, who buys a plan, this is the quote, through an exchange established by the state under Section 1311. Well, as you may recall, if the states don't set up the exchanges, the federal government does, and in two-thirds of the states, the states never set up the exchanges, so the federal governments did. The Halbig um, uh, challenge says, if you live in one of those states that didn't set up an exchange, you're now getting coverage thinking you've got a subsidy coming, and they're charging you as if you're getting a subsidy, but under the statute, you're not entitled to a subsidy because the subsidy only goes to those who in fact buy a policy that was set up that from a, an exchange set up by the state. And these people are buying their policies from an exchange set up by the federal government, not a state. It's, when the, this case broke, people thought it was crazy. It was irrational. It's so clearly inconsistent with the purpose of the ACA and what it was intended to do. But it, in fact, has now been taken very seriously. Many people predict that the D.C. Circuit 2 to 1 will, um, uh, will accept that challenge and will find that none of those subsidies are available on the ACA. And if the people in two-thirds of the states lose their subsidies under the ACA, um, I think we can say that the ACA comes fairly close to crashing and burning. Maybe states go quickly jump in to set up their own exchange to save their own citizens. But maybe, in fact, it just crashes the ACA. If half the people lose their subsidies, it's going to be um, a disaster for the ACA. That will be in the Supreme Court by next year. And the last case is the challenge to the Independent Payment Advisory Board. It's a more limited challenge, but also a really significant one. You know, 
Congress had to figure out how to control the cost of Medicare. We've been incredibly unsuccessful in that. Congress set up the Independent Payment Advisory Board, 15 non-political healthcare policy experts. They are going to, starting next year, they're going to propose a plan to the DHHS and to Congress that says, here's how we meet the cost-saving goals in the ACA in the Medicare program. And what they propose goes into effect unless Congress acts that with the same kind of, with, with equal cost savings, or Congress meets the goals of cost saving, or Congress vetoes what the IPAB decided by a majority vote in the House and three-fifths vote in the Senate. And well, what's, what's legally wrong with that? Well, it's a separation of powers challenge. Um, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, appointed by the President, is an executive administrative agency. It's part of the presidency of the United States, part of the executive branch. But the Congress makes law and makes a budget. The president executes the law. And so the argument in that case is the IPAB is really making law. They're establishing a budget. That's what Congress does. It violates the principle of separation of powers for the um, uh, IPAB, an executive agency, to make that budget when, in fact, it should be Congress who's making that determination. And so that's going to be, I think, a, um, a serious case as well. If the IPAB fails, we're going, to, we're going to have a hard time controlling Medicare costs, as we always have. It's not going to be the IPAB will become like MedPAC. Um, but in fact, um, I think that, there's, that there is, it appears that there's a reasonable chance that that will succeed, too. That was just argued to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, actually in San Francisco, three weeks ago. So there, um, uh, the ACA survived today. I think it survived completely unscathed, almost completely unscathed today. We're in fine shape. The next two years are going to be much tougher in courts for the ACA. Great. Well, I want to thank uh, all of our panelists for their comments. Um, it's, it's really an illustration of the fact that if we'd had uh, more time, we would have presented you a shorter panel. Um, the, the ruling just came down a few hours ago, and uh, there's been a lot of work to try to figure out what all of this uh, – what all the opinions from the court means, and then to try to put that in context. Uh, I'm actually going to ask the audience members to start thinking about questions and get ready for that, because um, I think we'd like to spend our last five minutes hearing if there are questions that you have. I'll just point out that this is, you know, if we're thinking about health outcomes in the ACA, this is a beautiful illustration of how the evidence can be very clear, uh, the politics uh, can be very muddy, and the Supreme Court seems to be consistently coming down on the side of the ACA in these uh, rulings, and yet it feels very, very uncertain. Um, so I think it makes us all very curious to know what's going to be happening in the next couple of years and, uh, and how is that sort of shaky support going to continue or are we on the verge of tipping over into something different? So do we have a question ready? So I realize this is a health policy panel, but going to that this doesn't necessarily impact the ACA outcome, does that mean they're greater in a line with Citizens United, does this decision have more effect on corporations as persons and public entities than it does in, in the healthcare realm? And does it have more impact on, as you were saying, religious freedoms? Is this a precedent that will be cited in cases more like that than healthcare? Yeah. First of all, I think there's a lot of hubbub about this case. Hobby Lobby won the case, and so the workaround is a workaround. So I, I, let me just go on the record as saying I, I am not as sanguine as Rob that uh, all was well with the ACA and that we're all going to live halfway ever after. And I can assure you that Justice Alito uh, is sleeping well tonight, not thinking that he uh, was protecting the ACA. That, that was not what he was about, and I don't think that's what the opinion is about. To speak more specifically, I think what the opinion is about was exactly what you say. I think it's about 
it's a, a very activist uh, opinion. Uh, it tracks Citizens United. There's uh, several pages of why corporations are people or associations of people. Uh, I fundamentally disagree with Rob's statement about religious freedom. Uh, I, I, I think people have religious freedom. Corporations do not. And there's nothing in the history of the free exercise clause or the religion clauses generally uh, that speaks to uh, corporations. And so that part of it. So I think, yeah, I think that where this is going uh, is the expansion of First Amendment protection for corporations. Uh, and I think in the end, that's bad for people. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I teach when I teach constitutional law is don't look at the original decision. You can't understand Brown versus Board of Education by reading Brown versus Board of Education. You have to read 50 years of jurisprudence. Uh, nobody, you know, this was decided this morning, nobody should expect to understand the effects of Hobby Lobby or Citizens United from where we sit today. Uh, this is a, I think you're exactly right. <laughs> This is part of a broad canvas. Uh, the conservative justices are painting on that canvas, and there's a lot of parts of the canvas that haven't been uh, reached yet, uh, and they're going to get to it. Uh, and that, those are the days that I worry about. Great. We have another question. Yeah, thank you. I just want to throw out three areas of concern, some of which have been mentioned uh, in the decision. One is the, I think, really strong transfer of rights to corporations over individuals and also employers over employees, the tremendous solicitousness shown about burdening these employers for having to pay their health insurance premiums versus the vast disruption that's likely to occur to the employees. So that's one thing. Um, uh, the issue of science, I think Alito questions uh, the science that you prevent, uh, presented very uh, clearly about what we do know about contraception. But the other uh, area where I think we're really in trouble is in uh, the legitimacy of contraception and this, the ongoing stigma that we face towards coverage for contraception and abortion. I think um, if we look at uh, the slow drip of the accommodations, I think it's true we could just give... Uh, uh, corporations the same accommodation that has been provided to religious institutions. I think uh, the whole, I think it's been a slippery slope to, con uh, uh, I'm not saying this is the only reason that it's been gone on, but I think it's been a slippery slope to delegitimate the uh, ready provision of a very important health care service, and I think that that's likely to continue with this uh, ruling. So, so Jennifer, you and uh, Diane, I think that frame this in some ways as within the, the broader context of the ACA. I wonder if you want to respond um, to the, the, the sort of zeitgeist around the legitimacy of, of contraception and how this fits in. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you sort of heard this. This is a women are a very important key voting group. And um, Democrats and Republicans are fighting for the vote of women. And you've got on one side saying there's a war on women. Um, and then you've got the other side, which is uh, sort of fighting against any creep against, um, you know, protection of, you know, their pro-life views, anti-abortion views, you know. It's pro-life if you're on the right, it's anti-abortion if you're on the left. So I really didn't want to wade into the politics too much um, of contraception and where this fits in. Um, I think that that's a really slippery slope for anybody to try to delve into. Um, but certainly do I think that that's um, going to be talking points you're going to hear leading up to the next midterm election and to the next presidential election, you know, particularly if the main Democrat candidate is, is a woman, then um, yes, I, I do think this is going to feed into that. But maybe I want to talk a little bit more about 
sort of from a scientist's perspective of politics. No, the, the relation between science and politics doesn't seem very strong. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I only have my personal opinion that this seems like it will rally um, feminist groups more than it will um, rally anti-contraceptive groups. And that, that might, this is my personal opinion, that it might help in the promote pro-contraceptive policies or people in the future. But I don't know. I don't know whether a loss inspires more than a win. I was just going to say, first, I mean, I do think that, that we ought to be worried about where science is in our society and the way science is treated by agencies of government. But that wasn't the question before the Supreme Court. Here, there was a pure religious view. It could be completely irrational and non-scientific. It didn't make any difference. It was a sincerely held religious view, and that's all the court cared about. Second, I do think that there have been real tax attacks on the legitimacy of contraception and abortion in American politics and in American law. And probably the single biggest attack that we don't actually formally recognize is the construction of the ACA. Remember, we had a, the compromise that gave us the ACA was one that really limited reproductive rights. Uh, we have, they're limited in the, the, the reproductive rights are limited in the policies of the exchanges. They're limited in other ways. Um, there isn't a hint of anything that touches upon abortion. The only reason we got the expansion of contraception that's being litigated now is that the statute talked about um, preventive services, and we had to depend upon HRSA to define a preventive services as including contraception for women. I mean, it never, if the original statute had said, we'll cover IUDs and morning after pills, it, we would not have the ACA today. So I do think that there's a legit, uh, that, that the legitimacy of contraception and abortion are a real, uh, are being attacked and it's a real problem, but I don't think that the case decided today affected that in any way. It wasn't part of the attack. In fact, when you get all nine justices agreeing, at least to assume that there's a compelling state interest in the morning after pill, I think that's pretty powerful the other way. Yeah, let me slightly disagree again with Rob. Um, first of all, I, I think the idea of the, I think there is a religion-science conflict in the decision. Alito uh, says on the question of whether the four contraceptives uh, are in fact abort efficients, um, that they are sincerely held religious views, and he doesn't go into the science question on what is the fact of the matter. And so there is a issue here that is likely to come up in a, in a subsequent case is what happens when the sincerely held religious view is contrary to the uh, standard scientific or mainstream scientific view, uh, does the former uh, went out over the ladder. Uh, again, I, I simply do not read the opinion uh, to find that nine justices believe that there's a compelling government interest uh, in favor of abort efficiency or, or otherwise in, in some notion of abortion. Look at who the four justices are. All four of them do not believe uh, in Roe v. Wade and that there's a fundamental right to reproductive choice. And so if it were put to them as a straightforward question, there's absolutely no way in the world that Roberts... Alito, Thomas, and Scalia uh, believe that women have a fundamental right of reproductive choice, that they would overturn Roe in a heartbeat. And so to reason from their assumption in this case to a belief in their now uh, converted view in, in the belief of reproductive choice, uh, I think is, is a stretch that the opinion doesn't support. But Dave, you only need five justices. So how do you think well, that they... Just, Justice Kennedy voted with the majority in Gonzalez versus Carhartt. So Kennedy is not a strong vote. Uh, but I agree. But again, he's constantly in the, in the, in the middle ground. Uh, and so maybe he'll stay there. 
Um, obviously, this is a really interesting uh, issue with a lot of uh, future consequences. I want to thank our panelists very much for helping us understand how this might play out.